This is the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc, episode number 102. Let's do this. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Blanc. Hey there, welcome to the show. My name is Michael Blanc. I'm really excited that you're here to learn with me about apartment building investing the best way, in my opinion, to become financially free with real estate. Today on the show, I have Ben Risser. And the reason he's on the show is because he's done his first deal. And it wasn't just any kind of deal. It was 198 units in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And I want him to share his story with, with you because and I always ask this question, when did you decide to go into multifamily? And then I measured that time between the first deal. And it was 12 months from the time where he decided to do multifamily till he actually closed this deal. It would have been a lot sooner had it not taken months and months on end to close this deal and fill out a contract to another buyer as well. So had that not happened, it would have been more like six to seven months till his first deal. So I was fascinated by how someone bridges the gap between a full-time job and a full-time investor. And he's now full-time through a series of events that he apparently, you know, he didn't love those series of events. He was kind of pushed into be full-time. And this is why I wanted him to share the story because it's not just easy peasy, right? There's a lot of trials and tribulations and decision-making that goes on. And he started the real estate journey back in 2010. And it wasn't until 2017 where he decided he's going to do multifamily. And there was a bunch of distractions, shiny objectitis in the middle there. So I really want him to talk about all that preliminary stuff and then what finally precipitated him deciding multifamily and then what happened and things started happening really, really quickly. Before we get into the show, I just want to remind you guys that I have my in-person live event workshop, April 27th, and it's in Northern Virginia at the Hyatt. And it's going to be a two-day event where we simulate the purchase of a 69-unit apartment building. So you're actually going to be working small groups together, hands-on, everything from analyzing deal, getting it in a contract, dealing with some twists and turns along the way to due diligence, getting financing, raising the money. So that's April 27th to 29th here in Northern Virginia. For more information and to sign up, it's themichaelblanc.com forward slash summit. It's called the Financial Freedom Summit because if you can learn to do your first deal, you will be financially free in two to three years after that. So really excited about that. Make sure you check it out and join us if you can. All right, let's get right into interview now with Ben Risser. Here you go. Ben, welcome to the show today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, this is great. This is uh, in person here at the Michael Blanc Studios in Northern Virginia, and you came all the way from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So it's we're thrilled to have you here in person. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited because you've done what a lot of other people want to do, which is basically do your first deal and become a full-time syndicator. So I'm really excited to drawing out your story with us. So why don't you just give us a little background? Let's start back in the beginning, right? So let's go all the way back to you know what prompted you to start looking into real estate. Like what was going on in your life where you said, I need a solution to <clears throat> what problem? And what problem was that? What was going on in your life that required you to kind of look around? Well, I was... Uh... Fresh out of college, working at Boeing, went to school for aerospace engineering. So I was doing that at Boeing and it didn't take long for me to work in a corporate environment where I just felt like something's not right here. Something about this isn't a good fit. You know, like so many people, I stumbled into the Kiyosaki books and he put into words this discontent and frustration that I felt and helped me realize like, you know what, you're actually a serial entrepreneur and businessman and that's why you're struggling to be content in this corporate job. And mm. so that began my real estate studies. What were you discontent about in your in your job at the time? What was going on? I was working on a particular program where it's an aircraft that's been around for like 50 years. And it's kind of like, we, this is how we do things. Don't rock the boat. 
your new ideas are cute, but keep them to yourselves. Just turn the crank and out comes a sausage. And I'm very innovative. I'm always trying to think about how to do things better. I'm trying to think about how to scale things up. It was very much cramping my style and my creativity wasn't really valued there. Now, you could have solved this problem in another way, though, Ben. I mean, not just, just to pick at you a little bit, right? You could have gotten another job or become an, an artist or something. Like, why did you go right from where you are right now with your job to, oh, I know, real estate? The whole Kiyosaki thing made a lot of sense to me with real estate as an investment, building a pipeline and not carrying buckets. And I felt like everything I was doing in my life was making me a better bucket carrier. And I wanted to be someone who can build a pipeline and stop carrying buckets. And I think real estate is one of the avenues you can do that. It's something that's not super complex. You know, if you get into stocks and options and derivatives, that can get very complex. But real estate, everybody needs a place to live. And you pay rent, you pay your mortgage, straightforward. So when you're thinking, you're reading the Kiyosaki book and you're thinking real estate, what was the strategy you were thinking at the time? What was that first thing that you did when you decided you want to do real estate? I did like the idea of when he talked about rentals and the passive income, if you're actually passive in the investment. So I, I like the idea of money making money. And I like the idea of asset managing and not plunging toilets. But I think in the beginning, I was too scared and I kind of zoned in on single family home type strategies. And I kind of limited myself there and spun my wheels for a while until I eventually just accepted the fact that multifamily is the good fit. Did you do anything with single family or were you just researching or did you actually buy some? So an engineer, so analysis paralysis, analysis paralysis, and I studied my brains out for a long time doing single family stuff. I was looking into flips. I was looking into lease options. I was looking into buying, you know, flip and hold different strategies. I did pursue lease options for a while, mm -hmm. got burnt by a crooked partner mm -hmm. and almost hung it all up in frustration. You know, still working at Boeing and I just couldn't. I'm like, there's got to be more to life than this. I know I'm capable of a lot more than this. So I just kept pushing. So you kept pushing, but why did you make a transition to multifamily? Like you came to some realization. Why did you go to multifamily from what you were thinking of single family? Single family, <laughs> it just didn't seem scalable to me. It's like if I'm going to manage like 50 houses to generate a stream of income, why not just manage a 100 unit building? And it's the same amount of work. And it just, it came off to me as much more scalable I like the analysis side of things. It comes natural to me. Mm. Like everything about what I learned about multifamily through listening to your podcast for several years and eventually going through your course, I was just like, wow, this is the right fit for me. Then the question is, what did you do next? So you said, okay, I think single family house is not going to get me there. Multifamily is, I don't have everything figured out yet. What was your next steps after that when you said, okay, I'm going to do multifamily? Once I decided on multifamily, <laughs> you didn't pay me to do this, but I purchased your course yeah. and I went through the course. And then I started just trying to get out and network with people who are in the multifamily business. It's actually tough to do because most of the RIAs, multifamily is a very small contingent of a lot of these RIAs. And a lot of people are into flipping and, and single family home strategies. So it was a little bit of a you know, grace of God that I ran into my partner, how I did. And it was just a random sequence of events that I ran into my partner at a credit investor meeting. All right. So you did my course, you educated yourself, yes. right? And that gave you a good baseline and showed you how to find these, analyze deals. Yes. And so that was good. And then you started going to RIAs and you noticed that most people there are single family house guys, but you got yourself out there. You ran into your partner now. And, and so what did that, what did that do for you? I did a lot. Um, I got invited to an accredited investor meeting through a contact that I made at ARIA. And there I ran into my partner. That particular meeting was a syndicator who was presenting his business and presenting what syndication was. And 
I ran in my partner and then I followed up with him after that meeting and I was persistent with him because a lot of people, when you're very successful at what you do, everybody's trying to get to you and you have to filter out the tire kickers from the people who are really serious. And mm -hmm. so I was persistent with uh, my partner, Matt Faircloth. You know, eventually I started underwriting deals for him. You know, one thing led to another. Right. It sounds like he had some access to money, ability to raise money. Yeah. So <clears throat> in our first deal that we did, he raised all the equity mm -hmm. and I did a lot of the other like work related to uh, underwriting and all the various miscellaneous tasks to closing. So did you find this deal? I did not find this deal. Um, he has a had a good relationship with Marcus and Millichap broker who had his eyes open for us in the South through uh, an M&M broker down there. We received this deal, notice of this deal. And so we started underwriting this in about June of 2017. So this is great. So he had access to capital. He obviously was already looking for deals, right? Yeah, now, was, why, why do you think it was a good idea to partner with you? Why is this partnership working for you guys? He certainly is capable and can do all the underwriting, but he loves to focus on the business. He loves to focus on doing the things that he's strong at, and I'm strong at underwriting. And I just pursued him and started you know, underwriting some deals for him. And I think after a while, he actually took a personality test. His wife sent me a personality test and <laughs> we're like polar opposites, me and Matt. And wow. it turns out it's Perfect. a good fit. Right. His strengths are, can be my weaknesses and vice versa. Yeah, that's great because there is a lot of details that you pay attention to, not only in the underwriting, but obviously as in the loan process, being responsive to the lender and that kind of stuff. There's a lot of attention to detail required. Oh, so if you're, if, if you're a big picture person, this could really stress you out. <laughs> yeah, so he's great at the big picture. He can handle the small details, but he loves to operate at the big picture and he's a visionary and I, I like to operate at that level, but I can also crunch the numbers and work the little stuff. I love this, right? So you, you go out there, you start networking. I find that networking and partnerships, a vast majority of people have done their deal, not just their deal, but subsequent deals with partnerships. And this is another example of that. So you went out, partnered with this guy, so say, look, I have some access to capital, but man, I could really use some help with the underwriting and the actual due diligence mm -hmm. and, and the asset management side. He said, hey, you know what? I can help you with that. And you kind of came to an agreement. So tell us a little bit more about this 198-unit uh, deal. So the 198-unit deal was in Fayetteville, North Carolina. It's where the base of Fort Bragg is. So it's a military town. This essentially was a D property when we acquired it. Wow. There was a lot of crime. There was a lot of vacancy. There was a lot of shenanigans going on with the current management company, which we didn't really fully grasp the magnitude of until we took ownership and realized what we were getting ourselves into. It was a big value add deal. So we started underwriting in June and eventually through a long sequence of events, we ended up closing in January 2018. That's a pretty long time. Um, it was a marathon. We purchased that for uh, 6.65. 6.65. How much capital are you putting into the property? We have a total CapEx budget of $1.7 and that's including the 10% contingency and the mm -hmm. CM fee. What's the business plan slash what's the opportunity with, with this deal? Why do you guys think it was such a good deal? Fort Bragg and Fayetteville and all that, it's a stable and growing town. It's not one of those towns where you're going to see like, you know, two, three, four percent job growth, but it's, it's just stable. And the government is consolidating bases to Fort Bragg. And there's tons of new construction and cranes in Fayetteville if you go down there. Hmm. This was a kind of like a D property in a B to B minus neighborhood. Wow, and great. And so there was just, it was kind of the place that the restaurants didn't deliver to, the cops didn't go. You know, even if the town was deteriorating, you could flip it and still get in and get out and make your money. And, you know, this may shape up to be a good hold. So it was a deep property in a kind of a B minus area, which is great. So what was the discrepancy in rents? Like after you fix all this stuff, what's the rent increase? 
So we projected about a 24% rent increase. So the average, wow. yeah. the weighted average rent when we took ownership was around 531 mm. a door. And we projected 635 as our projected weighted average rent. And when we started doing rent surveys on our rented units, people were like up in the high 600s, low 700s. So mm. I think we're going to far exceed our uh, projections. And so it's exciting. That is exciting. Wow. It's, it's great to be conservative in your underwriting and then be surprised. That's right. So why did it take so long to close? You said you started this deal in June and you closed in January. Why did it take so long? What what happened? We put an offer in, I believe, in July of last summer. That offer was, I think, 6.59. There was another offer from an investor in Jersey that was higher than ours, and they accepted that offer. And then that guy tried to come back and retrade for like a million dollars. All right. The seller walked. And they came back to us mm. and then my partner negotiated, you know, with the owner face-to-face across from the table wow. down there in Fayetteville. That's great. And came to an agreement on 6.65. So we went under agreement, you know, probably like mid-summer, last summer. We needed a lot of runway to get all the financing straightened out, get all the equity raised. And then interestingly enough, like in January when we're like, we're trying to close, like, who would have thought that Fayetteville could have a snowstorm and all the courthouses were closed. And so it just kept delaying things. And like the attorney fees are ching, ching, racking up every time an attorney sends an email. Mm-hmm. It's like 10 minutes at 300 bucks. Right, right, <laughs> right. Exactly. So it took a little while to close. Mm-hmm. Any complications? Any curveballs that you guys had to deal with? Yeah, we had an environmental. There's a laundromat adjacent to the property. So that laundromat caught the eye of the environmental report. And so they made us do a phase two. Oh. So that hung us up. We didn't know what we were going to get into, if we we're going to have to shovel out dirty dirt and bring in clean dirt or what we were going to have to do. We eventually got through phase two. We didn't have to do any heavy remediations. You know, that was certainly a curveball on the way there. We had some lenders that talked a big game. And then when you actually got their term sheet and you got closer, mm-hmm. you're like, hey, your term sounded a whole lot better when I was talking to you on the phone. And now I'm looking at this paper, you know. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times lenders will talk big to get in with you. And then when it actually comes to giving you the mortgage commitment, it's it's not what you talked about. Wow. Uh, do you have some shifts and gears with the lenders, it sounds like? Yeah, I think we changed lenders at least once or twice mm-hmm. on the way there. Wow. How did the money raise go? Because you guys raised a substantial amount of money. How did that go? My partner, Matt Faircloth, raised the equity on this particular deal. I hope to be raising equity in the future on our future deals. He had a well-established network of investors that he'd been working with him and his business dealings up in Trenton, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. He shook the tree and was able to raise a, it was a $3.2 million equity raise. That's excellent. That's a heck of a raise. He had raised money before, I assume, but maybe not this much. I think this was his biggest raise he ever mm-hmm. did. And so it was a stretch and he likes a challenge. Yeah, he does. Yes. Okay. Well, this is great. So now you are a full-time doing this stuff. Can you talk a little bit more about your transition from your job to full-time syndicator? I had been working at Boeing and then I left Boeing in uh, March of 2016. And all the while I was working on real estate during this time. And then I went to work for a small engineering company, got laid off last year and uh, was just kind of thrust into this full time. So it wasn't my timing. I was, you know, much more of the mindset, I'm going to do this to three to five years and replace my income. But good Lord had other ideas. And so here I am doing this full time and it's a blessing, but it was also a cause of anxiety because now I can focus on the business full time, but it's like, got to make this work. Well, all right. So you were laid off. I'm sure you probably started looking for another job. But at one point, you kind of said, look, all right, I'm just going to bag that idea and go full bore 
with this thing here. Talk a little bit more about some of the challenges you went through because very often that transition from full-time job to full-time syndicator is a, a painful one, oftentimes financially so, but more so than that even mentally. So can you talk about kind of the challenges that you went through to make that decision and stick with it, even though I'm sure it was not easy to do that? It was a stress. We had had a baby last summer in June, and then we moved from Westchester area, PA, into the Lidditz, PA area that summer. And then right after we moved, got in the new house with a brand new mortgage payment, I lose my job. Mm. We have three kids, you know, then a brand newborn. And so it was a lot of stress on my wife and I. And I did the whole resume thing. I shot resumes out all over the world and trying to get another engineering job and nothing came about. And my wife and I just had a piece that God didn't bring us to Lancaster to let us fall into financial ruin. He has a purpose in this. We were at peace about me pursuing the business. And I can tell you for a fact that in the past, my wife wasn't always like that. Wives love security and stability, predictability, and that's not me. (laughs) Yeah, but you have to be sensitive to to that. Despite that, it sounds like your wife was on board with it, which may be surprising to some degree, but I'm I'm sure it was necessary because she was still working, though Mm -hmm. you lost your income. So financially, probably, it was definitely a major risk. It was a stretch. You know, it's like just an ongoing walk of faith, you know, and I'm just doing what I think I'm supposed to be doing. and, And so far, it's working out. So this deal is great because you paid yourself an acquisition fee. At mm-hmm. closing, and now you only closed on this a couple months ago. Is it starting to pay distributions yet, or, or not quite yet? It's part of this particular deal since it's such a huge value add deal, and you know, it turned out you know we had about a forty five percent economic loss wow. when we took ownership. Yeah, and so that was a little bit different than the OM. <laughs> right. So we we're not going to take partners, and we're not going to do distributions. We're going to roll that cash flow back into the capex. And so the the expectation we set with our investors is, you know, this is a big value add deal. So we're not guaranteeing distributions in year one. It's not that it's not going to happen, but we just said don't count on it. So yeah, it's starting to pay. You know, there's asset management fees. We do our asset management fee a little bit different. Actually, I think your 2.61 now does it on net income versus mm. before it was a capital account. Right. That was one of the things we changed. Yep. Probably in, in the first quarter, we'll take some kind of asset management fee. But it's probably not substantial, right? So in other words, the acquisition fee paid off, but really you're still kind of tightening your belt yeah. until this thing starts paying off and it will yeah. pay off big. It will. Yeah. It's interesting. The cash on cash just climbs after refi. Yeah. But 45%, you know, half empty. By the time you get to 80%, it's There were bodies in the rooms, (laughs) but they weren't paying. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But it's great. So what's next for you? My partner and I were actively looking for uh, opportunities in the Southeast. We like, you know, North Carolina. We like Alabama. We like along the coast down towards uh, Newport News and south of there towards Savannah. So we're... Mm. And we love our property manager who's active in that area. That's great. Who's, I can't emphasize how important it is to have a really good property manager who is well-versed in value adds. They're your eyes and ears down there. Yeah. I'm sure in this case, instrumental in helping you evaluate this deal during due diligence and maybe even before. Can you talk a little bit more about what they did for you? Yeah. Well, they helped us go over our expenses and you know, like what our payroll was. So, I mean, they were the prior owners had like They were horribly understaffed, which was causing all of the deterioration of property and the horrible reviews online. So we underwrote to about $1,100 a door for payroll, you know, renegotiate a lot of our like trash contracts and utilities Mm. and pests. And the property manager was great because they know what the numbers are in those areas because, you know, up in like Manhattan, it's going to be different. They're going to be managing all of their construction and renovations as well, right? Yeah, this company actually, uh, SMP, they do property management and construction management. So we are having them manage our, it's a 198 unit 
renovation. So we just actually started recently with the exterior renos and we just picked out paint colors and the interior renos will probably have 20 units available probably first week of April. That's exciting. We're really going to change the face of the property. And it's, I'm hoping that, you know, much like the recent podcast you did on impact investing, that we really can give these people a nice, clean place to live and give them dignity and be a real community where people want to live. Yeah. Versus what it was when we took ownership. Yeah, it's fabulous. You guys are going to do very, very well with this. So, and now, by the way, you have track record, right? Both of you guys, a track record. You're probably going to be seen there. You're going to become a, a deal magnet and a money magnet. That'd be great. Yeah. That's, Always looking to raise capital and looking for deals. It's the, the yeah, two you know, colors these, of the business. That's right. These brokers, they talk amongst each other. You know, all these these guys, they just closed this 198. They did. Yeah. And so word gets out. Yeah. So you're going to get, you know, brokers calling you going, hey, I got this another one, another deal. Mm-hmm. And then some of the investors, some of them on the sidelines from last time, are like, oh, I want to get it on this thing next mm-hmm. time around. So it's going to become easier and easier to raise money as well. It's very, very exciting. What kind of advice do you have for someone sitting in their cubicle they're dreaming of quitting their job with real estate. What's your advice to them? I think perseverance was a huge thing because there was, you know, I started studying real estate in 2010 and it's 2018 now and I just closed my first deal. And so it was a marathon for me. There was a lot of setbacks. There were some distractions. I had a problem. I think one of the reasons I didn't have success earlier on is because I didn't stick with one strategy long enough to see it through to success. I chased some shining objects, kind of pursued the CFA charter. I managed to pass the level one there. I don't, it wasn't time wasted. I think it was, it gave me a, a great foundation, but uh, I would say perseverance and get focused and stick with it. When did you decide to do multifamily? You remember when that was? It was end of 2016. So let's say 2017. And then you essentially took you from that point, took you 12 months to do this deal roughly. Yeah. I found my, ran into my partner and then, yeah, essentially it took about that long. That's pretty amazing. And it was a heck of a deal that you did. So you had some distractions beforehand. And like most yeah. of us, we have distractions. We do single family. Sometimes we have analysis paralysis. Yeah. And, and kept then, having babies too. Kept having babies. <laughs> and that really slows you down. <laughs> it does. <laughs> it amazes me continually. I always ask people when they decide to do multifamily because that's when the clock starts ticking. And I found that most people who have done their first deal in the first 12 months and then typically they do two deals in the second year. So in this 2018, you're likely going to be doing two deals. That'd be great. Yeah. And then most people are like, you know, have achieved their financial goals, which mm-hmm. is normally replacing their income, you know, which you haven't quite done yet, which is great. You, now you're focusing full time and that's good. But by the time you do another two or you do one more of these and that will help considerably. Absolutely. So. I have to give credit to my wife because she supported me in right. all of my different ventures and through the whole the CFA challenge. And then this was kind of like the last straw like all right ben i'll support you in this one but you need to stick with this one because you know i I kind of i'm an entrepreneurial add and so i got to stay focused the wife was great through it all yeah it's very important to have your spousal support oh yeah you can't do it without that so uh if people want to connect with you ben how can people find you i don't have a website up yet i used to have a website right now i'd say my email address which is b.r.i.s.s.e.r at providencecapital.org outstanding well listen i appreciate you coming all the way down here from lancaster it was a real pleasure to do this in person really exciting so thanks very much and congratulations on this deal and for sharing it with all the listeners here thanks for having me mike all right there's a several key lessons here that i want i want to highlight but this is what i learned from talking to ben here and that is number one really focus on something he lost like seven years just putzing around pursuing different things all the way from single family house investing to option trading and he had this what i call shiny object titus 
And it's just basically this inability to focus on any one thing, allowing you to focus long enough to be successful with any one thing. And then we deal with a lot of distractions. And so become really clear about what you're trying to do. And this is why I go back to the single family house investing. If you really think about, will this activity, what I'm doing, get me actually to my goal, which is quitting my job, financial freedom, you know, and if the answer is no, then maybe I need to adjust my strategy. Okay, so that's number one, then really focus on that. Number two, get your education. Now, Ben happened to go through my course, The Ultimate Guide to Buying Apartment Buildings with Private Money. I think it's the most comprehensive course out there on the planet because it focuses a lot on raising money and a very emphasis on analysis. So if you want to check that out at themichaelblanc.com forward slash products, and you can look at that product there as well. It doesn't have to be mine, okay? This number two is to educate yourself, and that's kind of what he did. And number three is to take action, meaning that he started analyzing deals, but he also started networking. He went to these RIA meetings, and you need to get yourself out there because that's so key in exposing yourself to others and sharing your enthusiasm to kind of get support. And number four is don't be afraid to partner. If you listen to the show for any period of time, you'll notice that there are a lot of people who partnered on their first deal and even subsequent deals. I mean, Ben wouldn't have done 198 units by himself. And so he found someone to partner with and that partnership works out great. And this is also why we partner with people as well. So in other words, if you find a deal and you bring it to us, we will raise the equity for you in the same way that Ben and his partner did as well. If you want to find out more about that, go to the michaelblanc.com forward slash partner. Okay, it works in a very similar fashion. We keep you in the deal, but then raise all the equity for the deal. Okay, so don't let equity or lack thereof stop you. Consider partnering. And that's kind of what he did. I had Corey Peterson on the call as well. He was the other side. He actually had the money from his house flipping business and didn't have the deals, found someone with a deal and they kind of partnered together. So don't discount partnering. In fact, use it as a tool to accelerate your progress and get into your first deal to establish that all important track record. All right, cool. So guys, that's the end of the show. If you haven't done so already, make sure you download my free ebook related to raising money called The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. And it's at themichaelblanc.com forward slash ebook. So make sure you grab that before you leave. If you love the show, love to have your review on iTunes. It just, I love reading them, number one. And number two, it exposes it to a larger audience. And really the message to the millions is, yes, you can become financially free with real estate, but probably not in the way that you think, which is most likely single family houses, right? So that, that message needs to be heard by as many people as possible. So hope you guys enjoyed that and were inspired by Ben's story. All right, now I'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.